with Alan's wife, Bell on Game Changers. And uh, we're on we're on Facebook, Alan. We're on LinkedIn. We're live. We're on YouTube live. We're on Twitter live. We're on, on all over the place. <laughs> so there's like dozens of people. So watching. I have tens of fans that are watching wow. us right now. Tens. Figures, double figures. That's great. <laughs> double figures. Alan, all right. We have to talk about the elephant in the room, as you called it, and as is so true. I saw your post earlier today on Facebook, and you said there is absolutely no way to be funny today. I agree with you. But, Alan, what's going to happen to the guys, the Jimmy, the Jimmy Kimmels, that have to go on the air tonight, and they have to be funny? How do you do it? How do you write funny on a day like today? You know, it's, um, it's not easy by any means. You know, I go back to um, when... SNL, you know, um, after Sandy Hook. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, oh, we God. actually, what my wife and I went to the live show that we coincidentally, because I think our friend uh, Marty Short was hosting. Oh, wow. And um, what they had was a children's choir singing Silent Night. And oh. it was incredibly appropriate oh. and touching. And then, if you remember, Right after 9-11, SNL came back on the air a week or so or two later, and they had Rudy Giuliani, maybe 20 people. They were firemen, policemen, uh, uh, guys from the Port Authority, the heroes of New York at the time, okay? And Rudy Giuliani did a, uh, it was a different Rudy Giuliani at the time. Oh, yes, it was. Yes, indeed. He didn't have Mm -hmm. the you know, the, the dye running down his face. But he gave <laughs> a, a, a monologue about New York. We're still here. We're still vital. Um, no matter what happened, uh, none of these cowards are going to change our ways of life. And um, it segued into Paul Simon singing The Boxer, which wow. he did. And then they came back to Rudy Giuliani. And like I said, there must have been 20 guys up there. He was flanked on both sides. Like, by all these heroes, you know? And uh, he said, um, he said, we will have a show. And uh, Lorne came on uh, and said, um, he thanked Rudy and everybody else for being there. And it was incredibly somber as you can imagine. And Giuliani then said, well, Saturday Night Live is one of the great institutions of New York. And uh, to show that we're still uh, vital and here, you know, we're happy to do this show. Lauren then said, are we allowed to be funny? And Giuliani, <laughs> and Giuliani said, why start now? Okay. <laughs> and, and I just thought it was brilliant. It, it, that, it, 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 did somebody write that for him? That was oh, brilliant. I'm sh- oh, I'm sure. I'm sure it might've been Lauren himself. I, uh, okay. But when you... <laughs> Okay, once again, there was the elephant in the room mm-hmm. and um, the, an acknowledgement had to be made of it. As far as any of monologists that's going to be on the air tonight, any of the talk show guys, I think an acknowledgement will have to be made. Um, to be funny about it uh, is a verboten and there, I can, can't even imagine how anybody could even think that way uh, but I do think that there has to be, if especially if you're going to proceed with a comedy show, mm-hmm. uh, with a monologue, uh, there's got to be an acknowledgement of um, the conditions 
as to how what what conditions we're doing this tonight. You know, it's got to it's human. It, it, it's just human. You know, look, any comedy writer, uh, you know, there are times you know somebody dies in your family. There's a uh, you break up with somebody, uh, and you got to go to work, and mm -hmm. you got to be funny. You know, mm -hmm. so sometimes it's um, therapeutic. It's cathartic in a right. way. And that's why, uh, to a great extent, we're lucky. Um, writers in general can take their pen and stick it into their hearts and just access any mood, any time, any mm -hmm. uh, relive something. And it, it's honest and it's real. And within it is there may be humor. There's no humor about the conditions under which we're talking tonight. It's inconceivable to even think about it. But if your job is to be funny, uh, try to be funny about something else, you know? Okay, um, here's the maybe one exception that I can think of. And you tell me because you knew him far better than I did. But the one person I could think of that would make a joke today somehow might've been Gilbert. Well, you know something? When Gilbert died, it's about two months ago now, six weeks, yeah. two months ago, a lot of us spoke at his funeral. And if you want to see a very funny funeral, oh, uh, they live stream. They, no, I'm serious. It sounds oh, crazy. I, I spoke. No. I spoke. Jeffrey Ross spoke. Susie Essman <laughs> spoke. Paul Schaefer um, said the, uh, the Kaddish at the end. He led everybody in the prayer for the dead. And even Gilbert's uh, wife, um, Dara, mm -hmm. was hilarious in talking about her relationship with Gilbert. And we all made jokes about how cheap he was and, and, and how inappropriate he was. And, you know, and there's a coffin right there with Gilbert inside. It's a, it's, it's a funeral, you know, and I remember, I forgot what Jeffrey Ross said. He got a laugh at something about Gilbert and he looked at the coffin and went, it's not so funny now, is it Gilbert? Okay. And, but the, the funnier it was, the sadder it was because mm -hmm. We were speaking about somebody we loved mm. and uh, we spoke in his language. We quoted him, mm. you know, um, I, I remember uh, Dara, his wife is, is beautiful and she's a saint and they have these two children. And I, I actually ended up quoting myself in my speech at one point because <laughs> six, uh, when Gilbert turned 60, uh -huh about seven years ago, right? there was a, a, a dinner, uh, you know, a, a dinner party for him in some restaurant downtown in New York. And at one point we're all around the table and everybody's going around, you know, uh, toasting a Gilbert. Right. And I think it was either a Paul Schaefer or a Tom Leopold had said, uh, identified his wife, Dara, mm -hmm as the best thing that ever happened to Gilbert. And then it was my turn and I corrected him. I said, no, 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 no. That is the only thing that ever <laughs> happened to Gilbert. So it was, it was all within his vernacular, his world and whatever. Whether and I, I, don't, I don't think that um, despite Gilbert's uh, history and uh, the Affleck duck and uh, um, all the other stuff, I. I, I this is so uh, I doubt it 
I, 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 I really doubt it because he's a father. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and he's got these two beautiful kids, Lily and Max. And I think that what's hitting everybody, I mean, I, you know, we all know this. We, we relate to it. You, used to, you know, I have grandchildren. And, you know, you, you, go to, you go to school and you don't come back. I mean, this is so horrifying and it's so divisive in terms of the politics of it and everything. I, I just think that uh, it's impossible. So, okay, so let, let's talk for a moment, seriously, before, let's talk about this. How do you, how do your children talk to your grandchildren? What do you say when this is happening? They, uh, I assume they, they ha how could they not know what's going on? How do you get your kids to go to school? How do you get your grandkids to go to school and not be terrified when this is going on? I, I, I that's a wonderful question. Um, I have to speak to my kids to see how they're handling it with them. Mm -hmm. But this isn't the first time, you know, a couple of weeks, what was it, mm -hmm. eight days ago, the, the supermarket in Buffalo oh. and, 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 and all these schools and stuff. Um, I think that there has to be an assurance made that it won't happen here, but be careful and, and, and keep your eye open. What else can you possibly say to a kid? You know, um, it's... Uh, you know, and then you see the uh, that press conference that Greg Abbott had today, oh my gosh. And, and, and you feel like sticking your hands through the TV and just wringing his throat. You know, so um, I, I think that um, it's you know, listen, um, there are certain things that defy that. You know, comedy is um, tragedy <gasps> plus time. I, mm -hmm. I, I think this defies that. Okay, mm -hmm. I making jokes about Lincoln. Okay, fine. Okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> but, but something like this, um, yeah, I think is totally verboten. I, I, yeah, I, I agree with you. And, um, and I'm sorry that we're doing this today. But yeah, the gonna, timing is beautiful. <laughs> honey. <laughs> we're gonna, but now, I, and now I want to talk about another fun subject, Alan, because my son just got COVID. And when I mentioned that to you, when we came just before we got on the air, you told me what, Alan? I told you that I have it right now. And uh. my wife is just getting over it. You know, we thought that we dodged that bullet. We're here on the East Coast, you right. know, and that doesn't mean that we were immune by it. But the East Coast got a little bit more lax mm -hmm. than, than L.A. did in other parts of the country. And um, I had a speaking engagement I want to say two weeks ago now, uh, up in uh, Springfield, Massachusetts, right? Mm -hmm. And they said, listen, we could fly you or uh, you, you can, you know, take the uh, train. Mm -hmm. And I'm going, gee, it's only two hours. Why start with airports? I'll sit on the train. I'll look at the window. So I took Amtrak. Okay. And I'm sitting next to a guy with no mask who's, you know, coughing like there's no tomorrow. And then I gave a speech, you know, because I'm still on book tour. And I look out and there's like 400 people in the audience. Some are masked, some aren't. But if they come over and want you to sign their book and take <gasps> sel selfies and stuff like that, right. you take the mask off. So lo and behold, I came back and a couple of days later, I'm coughing, you know? Uh -huh. so, so it's, it's um, but, there, but there's such an uptick again, you know, um, uh, of it. I know here on the East Coast, it's, it's surging again. And 
I don't know if hospitalizations are up. I don't know. Maybe you do. The hospitalizations are up, actually. Yes. I, you know, yes. so it's it's here we go again. And it's um, it's uh, boy, it's not fun. Did you have it? I have not had I have not had it. But I as I was telling you, I'm COVID. I've been COVID crazy and I really did isolate. And how serious did how seriously did you and Robin deal with it the first year and a half or so where you guys we did everything in? we were supposed to do we mm -hmm. were pretty much cloistered in our home here um we did all the masked stuff you know the first couple of what was it the first like month or two we were spraying mm -hmm. shit stuff that we want to say shit the <laughs> yes, stuff you can say shit. The house. <laughs> we were spraying we were doing everything we we're supposed to mm -hmm. and um the, and then you heard these horror stories on TV or people that we know who were hospitalized and, and this and that. And you go, oh, my God. And then it, it leveled off after a couple of years, okay, a couple of years. OK, also, <laughs> I think you grow bored. You go, you always go, all right, I want to go get on with my life. And um, and hello, it's back. You know, it's. Um, I don't know if it's with the same vengeance that I'm not smart enough or knowledgeable enough but it, it isn't fun. So what, what's it been? How long have you had it, Alan? And what's it, Julie Warner is saying, guys, this is so depressing. Yeah. And, and Leland Sklar is wishing you a belated happy birthday, by the way. Well, thank you. Thank you very uh, much. So what, how long have you had it? And what, what, how did it manifest for you? Oh, coughing like uh, <coughs> a lot, <laughs> but it hurt, you know, and sweating and fatigue. It would be like, I'm sitting here in my office, I'm writing, and all of a sudden I wake up. I went, well, no, wait a second. If I just woke up, <laughs> I meant I was asleep. <laughs> and, and so these unannounced naps happen. And I'll, and I'll look at the TV, because I usually write with the TV on, just for wow. some like white noise in the room. Uh -huh. I'll go, oh, two innings passed. I just slept, but I took a nap <laughs> for two innings, okay? Wow. I look at the clock and go, wow, 45 minutes are gone. So um, it, it's like that. It's the lethargy, you know, um, mm -hmm. coughing and all of that. And uh, I, I think we're Robin is certainly out of the woods. Um, I, I, I got another day or two. And um, how, how long uh, have you when did you uh, how long? A couple of weeks long? ago. Couple it's a couple of weeks. weeks already. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. And uh, all right, all right. Now, who's who's the one that we're depressing? Let's. Julie up. Warner, you know Julie. Don't, yeah, I know Julie. Yeah, yeah. So Julie. Right, Julie, calm down for the love of God. Now you're bringing me down. Okay. All right. So so I was going to go on a happy subject and then talk about here today, but then we're going to start talking about Alzheimer's. And that, that's going to be like a whole nother thing. So, but let's talk about that. So. All right. Let's that was that that was a very fascinating um, pr process. What had happened was, I, I <laughs> a few years ago, mm -hmm. there was a silent auction in New York, yeah. right? And the prize was having lunch with me. Okay, they were raising money for some charity, and and there were other prizes, but one of them was having lunch with me. So the big day comes, I go into New York. Now I live in Jersey, so there's tolls, there's parking, all right? And I meet this young woman at a restaurant, the designated restaurant, and mm -hmm. we're seated there. 
And I say to her at one point, I said, listen, I don't, you know, and I have friends like Larry David, who they'll pay a million dollars to watch him brush his teeth or <laughs> hands, you know, to tie his shoes, they'll, they'll, they'll cash in their bonds, you know? All right. So I'm seated there and I say to the young lady that I'm with, I said, listen, I don't want to be indelicate, but how much did you pay to have this lunch? <laughs> And she says 22 and I'm going, gee, $2,200. It's not Tom Hanks money, but it's not. She says, no, not $2,200, $22. That's how much it costs to have lunch with me. I said, what? She said, <laughs> the bidding started at $20 and went up in 50 cent increments. Okay. So now I hate her. Okay. I'm, okay. And she orders uh, the order of food. And she orders a seafood platter <laughs> the size of my high school. There was like shrimp, there was just like clams and lobster tails. And we're talking and all of a sudden I'm looking at her and this ear is turning red and this oh. eye is drooping. <laughs> and then her mouth is now like perpendicular to the table. She's having an, an allergic reaction to the seafood. Oh my God. And I'm sitting there and I'm trying to figure out, okay, when does my obligation to the contest winner end? So I'm a good guy. I dialed 911. I took her in an ambulance to oh Lenox Hill Hospital here in New York. She didn't have insurance. I bought her an EpiPen. So what cost her $22 cost me about $1,100, all right? So one of the times that I was a guest on the Letterman show, I told this story. Uh -huh. Billy Crystal, who's watching it in LA, he texts me right away, right after he watches it. And he says, listen, let's write a movie where an older guy and a younger woman, that's how they meet. And let's see where the story goes said, great. And, and if you look at the movie, it's almost verbatim how they I did look it. at the movie. It's exactly that. Mm -hmm. Well, while we were writing when, okay, look, we don't just want this to be a movie about an older guy, a younger woman, you know, we've seen that before. I know what those jokes are. So there was a writer who was a senior writer on SNL when I was there, his name was Herb Sargent. We were all in our mid twenties. He was in his mid fifties. Uh, I was very close with him, he was like a mentor. Mm -hmm. And then when Billy got to SNL, he had the same relationship with him. So I, so we decided, okay, Billy is going to be an older writer on a show like that, like The Daily Show or SNL. Mm -hmm. And we made up, what I'm about to say didn't happen to Herb, but we decided for this particular character, he was having the onset of uh, dementia. Mm -hmm. and uh, he was writing a book about his deceased wife and he was struggling and he wanted to finish the book before he ran out of his words all right mm -hmm. so he meets the young lady that I'm talking about and uh, she they become friends and she becomes his muse and there's a platonic but true love story between the two of them so then it came time to, all right, who should we cast as the younger woman? And we went through, you know, um, people, you know, we went through the list of the usual uh, suspects. Uh, and at one point, 
Billy calls me on a uh, Sunday morning. He said, did you watch SNL last night? And I, I hadn't, but I DVR'd it. He said, watch it. Tiffany Haddish hosted. I called him back. I said, she's great. So we made her. Now, Tiffany attached herself to it because she had a, a grandmother who's got dementia. Mm -hmm. So there was an emotional tug there. Okay. Right. So to, uh, we did this movie and it was magical. Uh, Billy directed it. I thought he did an amazing job. Mm -hmm. And, um, but it was, yeah, <laughs> to go along with our theme for tonight, it was very funny, but you know, it, there would, you, you cried at the end, you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, but that was a one, look, I've worked with Billy on and off. We, we met in 1974 when we were both starting out at the clubs here in New York. How did you meet? Well, I, had, I started out writing for Catskill comedians, okay, right out of college. <laughs> Because every law school in the United States said, no, 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 no. That's what you'll be doing. You're not coming here. They, they looked at my board scores. They go, this is a waste of everybody's time. So I started writing jokes for Catskill comedians. Okay, we have to stop a second. You, because I to, I've told you this before. My father was a Borscht Belt MC. And, in, and all those comics you were writing for, my father was presenting. How did you get that first? How'd you sell that first joke? My, my mom and dad went to Lake Tahoe and they went to the nightclub and they saw a show. Uh, Engelbert Humperdinck was the uh, singer. <laughs> and the opening act was a comedian, a, a Catskill comic named Morty Gunty. Oh, yes. My mom ran into him in a, uh, in a coffee shop the next morning mm -hmm. Said that she had a son who wanted to be a writer. He gave her uh, his number. And I called him and uh, he said to me, I said, listen, he said, well, you want to write for me? And, you know, look, I'm 21. He's 45. It's like writing for my parents crowd. So, but I started writing for him. I wrote for another guy named Freddie Roman. I wrote oh, God, for I know. <laughs> Dick Capri. Oh, yeah. You know, it goes on and on. But Alan, how before you writing for them, were you doing stand-up already? How did no, you start no, I writing? Wasn't doing, no, no, how no, did no. you know how to write a joke? I didn't. I, I what I did was I would watch the Ed Sullivan show. I would watch it and I would um I would write jokes that were this long. It, it took like a half hour to get to the punchline. <laughs> Life is short. You can't hear who's gonna stick around for that. Uh, so I learned by listening to them and watching, like I said, them on TV how to whittle it down, whittle it down. And there's a rhythm that they have. It's da-da, da-da, da-da. The third da-da is usually the laugh, okay? Yes. Mm -hmm. So I, I started honing that craft, but it was, like I said, it was difficult. Um, it wasn't the same sensibility. They were twice my age. Right. So what I decided I was going to do was, and before then, uh, the Catskills were the breeding ground for, uh, for comedians. That's okay, but wait, it. how did you know... You knew you were funny, clearly. Um, but how did that become the, how did being a comedy writer become the thing? I wanted to be a comedy writer since I used to watch the Dick Van Dyke show when I was a little mm. boy. I'm going, you know, look, here's this good looking guy. He's married to really pretty Mary Tyler Moore. They got a kid. They have a nice house in New Rochelle and he spent <laughs> his days at the office, lying on a couch and cracking jokes with Buddy and Sally. And I said, <laughs> I want to do that, okay? <laughs> Am I stupid? 
<laughs> I'm going to lift things. I can't do that. So that's what I wanted to do. And and prior to my getting to the Catskills, that was the way TV comedy writers started because mm -hmm. it was the breeding ground for people like Buddy Hackett and Red Buttons and Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis and Tony right. Fields and, and, and Alan King. And as they started becoming famous or going to LA and getting their own shows, mm -hmm. they would take their writers with them. But by the time I got there, anybody who was going to be famous had already left, okay? <laughs> so I'm left with every Morty, Dickie, Freddie, and Nick that ever lived. And uh, so I said, Jesus, I'm going to go nowhere fast because nobody was looking for those people to give them shows anymore. And the Catskills were sort of dying. You know, they mm -hmm. hung out. They hung on because they were hoping that, uh, that gambling. gambling would come that, there. That's and right. And resuscitate the area the way it did Atlantic City. Right. So a lot of them were operating in the red just with hopes. And that didn't happen. Right. So I looked around. I said, okay, what's the new breeding ground for comedy? Where, where are they starting? And there were two clubs in New York, as I'm sure you remember, the Improvisation mm -hmm. and Catch a Rising Star. So the plan was to get on stage, tell my jokes that those old guys wouldn't buy from me <laughs> with the hopes that a manager or an agent would come in, like the material, want to represent me, mm -hmm. help me get a job on a show. So that was the plan. And I was about the very first week I started hanging out there. Richard Belzer was always the MC. And um, I met this guy who was just starting out. His name was Billy Crystal. Mm. He lived about four. I'm, I'm still living at home with my parents. This is after college. He was married with a child and they lived about four towns over. He was in Long Beach. I was in Woodmere. He would pick me up every night in a little blue Volkswagen. We'd go into the city, tell our jokes. And when he'd drive me home, we would listen uh, on cassettes in the car to how we did, and we would give each other advice, maybe if you told it this way or that, or whatever. And um, I'm about, oh, four months into this experiment. And um, one night I'm having the hardest time in the world making these six drunks from Des Moines laugh. And I go to the bar afterwards, I'm sweating like a pig, I'm waiting for Billy so I can get a ride home. And a guy sits next to me and tells me I'm the worst comedian he's ever seen. I said, well, that, that's nice. I, that's, I really need to hear that now. That's helping a lot. He said, but your material's not bad. Did you write it? And I said, yeah. He said, can I see more? That was Lauren, Lauren Michaels. Wow. It was, I want to say, April of 75. Wow. He was looking in all the clubs for writers and actors for this new show that would premiere in the fall called Saturday Night Live. Wow. You know, so I went home and I sat at my parents' kitchen table and I typed up about 1,100 jokes. And I went into the city a couple of days <laughs> later. I gave him this tome of jokes <laughs> and he read the first joke. And, um, you know, uh, he ultimately gave me a job, you know. Um, Alan, can you please tell uh, tell us your first joke that you sold? Because I remember it, um, but... Um, it's still funny. Could you could you tell us? Well, the first story? joke I ever sold. Sold the first one you sold. You sold, yeah. Uh, Morty Gunty. I said, "Gee, what should I write about?" He said, "Sperm banks," like because they were so 
like I'm 21, like I cared. <coughs> so I said they have a new thing now called sperm banks, which is just like an ordinary bank, except here, after you make a deposit, you lose interest, okay? <laughs> and then a couple, about a week later, another Catskill comic named Freddie Roman calls up and says, hey, I heard you write great sperm bank jokes. I go, How did I become this guy? Why, why, why am I that guy, the sperm bank guy? So I wrote for him, I looked into the future. I said, you know, they're starting to freeze sperm, which could be a problem down the line. I says, because it's hard enough telling a kid he's been adopted. How do you tell me he's been defrosted, okay? <laughs> They paid me $7 a joke. Uh, so that was up to $14. Uh, th that was wonderful. And in those early days, I mean, were you even, were you making like $5 a, a, a set at that? Were you even making $5 at the improv? No, in those no, days? They, 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 no, I wasn't there long enough to get cab fare. Some, like if you went to the improv and then you went to catch afterwards, Bud right. Friedman would give you cab fare or Rick Newman would pay for it when you got there. No, I wasn't there long enough. I was literally there four months and then Lorne gave me a job. So the timing, uh, the stand-up was a means to an end. <clears throat> but the first- uh, Wait, Alan, you never had, it was never your dream to be the, the guy to, to be the one that got the show you you wanted to write I wanted to write I and to this very day I get asked that a lot you know I'll do the late night shows or I'll do in uh speaking engagements right and, and, and yeah they're successful but I, I just love writing so much I, I just like the um the challenge of sitting down with your vocabulary and trying to figure out what order to put the words in you know I was always intrigued by that and um so you know th th that's um that's what happened. You know, the first week I was there, I met Billy. You know, this started with Here Today, you know, and then years later, uh, you know, I also, that very first week or maybe the second week, it doesn't mm -hmm. matter, I met Larry David, who was just starting out. And to this and day- Larry, from what I understand, the comics comic, the audiences hated him from what I understand. Well, I got to tell you something. Um, I used to watch Larry, okay? We became fast friends, he mm -hmm. and I. So this is 74. Wow. And now, as you know, in those clubs, you do a 20 minute set. So if the guy before you was on at nine o'clock, you get there in time to be on at 920, all right? But if you were following Larry, <laughs> you got there also at nine o'clock. <laughs> I mean, Larry would get, back in those days, Larry had, Brillo kind of hair like Larry Fine from the Three Stooges, <laughs> yeah. wire rim glasses, and he wore a green army fatigue that said L. David on it, okay, because he was in a National Guard or something. And he would go on stage. Now, this would be a Friday night at the improv where you get the most white bread crowd in the world. You know, back in those days, it was, oh, it, it was leisure suits and pastels and ladies with blue hair from Jersey schlepping their husbands and they're sitting there. And I'd sit in the back and Larry would look at the audience and he'd say, I feel very comfortable with you people tonight. In fact, I feel so comfortable. I'm thinking of using the two form of the verb instead of usted. Now I'm in the back of the room laughing my ass off. A, I think it's really funny. <laughs> B, the audience, they're like an oil painting. <laughs> they're like that, okay? And uh, usually, as you know, when a comic, 
It's a roadblock, especially right out of the box. Right. He veers, goes in a different direction. Not Larry, just kept going. He says, I think a lot of people uh, misuse uh, the, the uh, two form of the verb. So when Brutus stabbed Caesar, Caesar said, A2 Brutus. And Brutus says, Caesar, I just stabbed you. If there was ever time for Usted, it's now. I'm laughing my ass off. There's tumbleweed coming down the aisle of the improv. Larry would look at the audience, tell them to go fuck themselves. And that would, uh, I get on at 9.01, okay? Oh my God. And to this day, they're my pals. Both of them are my good friends. And uh, years later, out in LA, as luck would have it, Billy, Larry, and I shared a suite at uh, Castle Rock, Rob mm -hmm. Reiner's company. And I knew Rob because he had hosted the third Saturday Night Live ever. So the fact that we were there it was like, when you think of all the different combinations and things and what could have, it was miraculous in a way. And there was one time where um, I was working on a movie script where Billy came in and asked if he can speak to me. I went into his office and he said, I have an idea for um, a Broadway play, a one man show called 700 Sundays. Would you I like to help? Would you like to help me with it? And for anybody who's, uh, you know, all 12 people who are watching right now, the, the, the um, Billy's, Billy's dad uh, worked um, two, sometimes three jobs, worked six days a week, and Sundays was their day. They mm -hmm. go bowling, they go to the beach, go to a ball game. And um, his dad died unexpectedly uh, when uh, Billy was 15. So he, figured out that he had approximately 700 Sundays with him, hence the title. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I helped him with that. We collaborated on that. And um, I, I, I'm very, very proud of it. Not, not only because it won a Tony and, and, and all of that, the fact that my good friend trusted me with his family. Mm -hmm. By and large, people I never met. I didn't know that older generation, you know, but I wrote for my grandparents and, you know, they, they were Jews from Europe, you know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what do you, you know, so, so <laughs> like with my, uh, so you say, you know, my grandparents uh, spoke uh, mostly Yiddish, which is a combination of German and phlegm. Okay. <laughs> so it worked for my grandparents, so it worked for his also. So, you know, it was, <laughs> and so that I'm very proud of because of the fact that he trusted me with something mm. so dear to him, you know? It was magnificent. Thank I you. saw it on Broadway. I had a wonderful seat. And, you know, I, I forgot, I, I said, you know, Julie Warner. Well, of course, Julie was in Mr. Saturday Night with Philly. And yes. uh, the added weirdness is that I was in the original first sketch of that. Buddy Young Jr. on SNL with Oh with wow, him. I didn't know that. Yeah, you know that you forgot. But anyway, it's so everything I was I wasn't <laughs> with the show when Billy was there. No, I know, but we've talked, but I've told you this. Oh, yeah, you right. told me. Yeah, yeah you're right. Yeah, I forgot. I told you. Yeah. But the, it, it's it's a small uh Lydia Cornell is asking if you knew Andrew Scheinman at Castle Rock. Well, yeah, Andy Scheinman, there were five partners. It was Rob Reiner, Andy Scheinman, Alan Horn, uh Martin Schaefer. And uh, oh, uh, Glenn Padnick. Uh, Andy Scheiman produced or co produced with Rob a lot of the most of the movies that Rob did at the time for Castle mm -hmm. Rock. 
Andy Scheinman was a great guy. I haven't seen him in, in many, many years. How is he? Are we allowed to I ask? don't know, Lydia. Lydia, tell us how he is. So, okay, so let's go back to SNL because where it all started. So you get there the first day. Did you know anybody when you got there? Oh, you knew God, no, no. You know, I walk into Lauren's office and um, for the first meeting to talk about this new show and I'm looking around and I see Belushi, I see Chevy and Dan Aykroyd and Lorraine. And I never heard of Second City. I mm -hmm. wrote for those cats right. guys. <laughs> right, right. Watching these guys on their feet create characters and little scenes and stuff like that. And I was just blown away by this kind of comedy. Obviously I learned about it and I learned sketch writing and all of that, but I didn't know anybody, no. If that had to be, I, I, I can only imagine walking into that environment, which, how much time did you have before the first show? Did you have time? Yeah, we did have time. We met uh, literally July 7th, 1975. And the first show was October 11th, 1970. So what's that? Uh, August, September, October. So it is three months. Okay. Okay. So there was enough time to have tons of dinners. That's when I met Gilda. And we hit it off right away and we started uh, writing together. And, um, you know, it became, you know, all of a sudden I was hip. <laughs> Look at this. Look who's hip all of a sudden. Okay. This big Jew from Long Island is hip, you know. Well, you, you're all about collaboration. You're not all about collaboration. You've written plenty of great stuff on your own, but you've your collaborations are so iconic. And Gilda being the first of those. Yeah. It, so... What was that? What was that? What was that writing relationship like? And and I just read today that I did not know all these years. I know you wrote uh, Roseanne Rosanna Dana with her, but that a Mr. Richard Fader is your brother-in-law. Yeah, he went yeah. to my high school. He's a year older than me, and um, I went off to college, and I'd call home on Sunday nights. Right, that's yeah. when you called your parents. And he'd answer the phone and go, what the hell are you doing at my house? I didn't know he was dating my sister. His name is Richard Fader. They lived in Fort, Fort Lee, New, New Jersey. Jersey. Yeah. So, okay. So what was your, who did what in that collab? Were you all, were you both on top of everything? Did you have a part? What was it like when you'd write okay, together? When, okay. Specifically that character. Mm -hmm. Um, Gilda and I, we look, she insisted that our relationship be platonic, which made me crazy. <laughs> it just drove me nuts. But I'm going, all right, if these are the rules, uh, I'll play by them now. But one day you'll open your eyes, you'll see the glory <laughs> that's in front of you. <laughs> okay, so we had this platonic friend, but we were married through this character. This character was uh, brash and loud, there was energy, and we both knew that it was a hit. And there was something that, what would happen is I would go out to dinner with her on a Friday night. I'd bring a legal pad and a pen. I would start to interview her, okay? I'd say, all right, Gilda, um, there's something called the Great American Smokeout where people are gonna stop smoking for a week. So that's what will make it topical. Um, and people, when they stop smoking, they start eating, they get fat. And uh, why don't we say you gained weight and you joined a health club? And then usually we had some famous person in a compromising position. So we decided 
okay, she stopped smoking, she got fat, she went to a health club, and in the sauna, she saw a Dr. Joyce Brothers with a sweat ball hanging from her, okay? <laughs> and I would start navigating her, and she, as Roseanne, would just start doing a monologue, and then I would bring her back, and, and then I'd go, we'd leave the restaurant at, oh, I maybe had nine pages of, of a legal pad. This was on a Friday night. The show was oh the God. next night. Gilda would go out in the world, either on a date that I wanted to be on with her, <laughs> or she'd, she'd call the office like at two in the morning, goes, why, Belle, how you doing? And, uh, and I go, I'm, you know, I'm still struggling with this. I said, oh, you'll have it, you'll have it. And I go, where are you? And she says, I'm home. And I go, bullshit, I hear music <laughs> and dancing back there. <laughs> What do you have? You got 200 people in your apartment? Um, <laughs> she'd come in, uh, let's say at noon the next day in time for run through. And I had all these pages that I had crafted into a first draft. I'd give it to her. She would take out a red pen or a, a red pencil, like a school mark, <laughs> and just start slashing shit and arrows and writing stuff in the margin and I'm up all night preparing this for her and she's doing this. Now I take the pages and I start going back upstairs to my office, right? And I hate her so much at this point. And I'm looking at the pages and I'm going, oh fuck, she's right. Oh, what she did was better than me. Oh yeah, I'll show her. So then I started improving on what she wrote, okay? And I'd bring it down and this would go all afternoon. And then finally there was a dress rehearsal, you know, with an audience. Right. Be still some more slashing. And then uh, when the, the, the on-air audience came in, she would do it. And it was generally a big hit. And, but at that point we weren't talking to each other anymore. <laughs> We'd go to the after party. I didn't want to know her. I didn't want to, I made believe I was with this person. <laughs> it was, it was such immaturity on my part, you know, and but that was what the process was. And other stuff was just fun and easy. We would write on subway. Sometimes we did a couple of college things together. And um, there was once a commercial a million years ago, a bald headed guy. And they drew over here. He coughed and they went, this is your cough center. And he turned. And he sneezed and went, this is your sinus center. Okay, this was, this is your nasal. Okay, she says, what if we make you bald, okay? And you sneeze and you got a cough center, but this is your Lincoln center. <laughs> and they started building stuff on my head. And, and they put actually a billboard over here, you know, uh, how, much, how much it was to rent that space. And we got so involved in it that we missed our stop and had to take a subway back, you know, to do our speaking engagement. So some of it was late night phone calls. Most of it was over dinner, but this Roseanne, Rosanna, Dana was the thing that um, we were married through that, through that character. It was, it, it was really, there was something explosive about it only because of the energy and the, uh, the hatred <laughs> oh. <laughs> on those days, you know? And so your relationship with Gilda was so strong and solid during all those Saturday Night Live years. What happened after Saturday Night Live? Did you guys stay connected? Because I know she did. It's the Gary Shandling show at the end of her life. What, 
What 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 happened in the middle there? Well, in the yeah. middle, we did lose touch. When she went to L.A. and she married Gene Wilder, there was no uh, emails. There was no right. this, you know. So and then the three hour difference in the time zones became a fact, especially if she was shooting a movie. Mm -hmm. So it, it really dwindled. Now, when I went out to do um, the, uh, it's Gary Shandling's show pilot which was in 86, we both left the show in 80. So my relationship with her became a little bit sporadic and, mm -hmm. and, and intermittent. But when I went back out there- But no I bad blood to, at, there was no, there was no bad blood. No, no, it. no, but know. it was just, you know, life got, yeah. got put up and it just started frittering away. But when I went out there to do the Shandling um, uh, pilot, I was out there alone. Robin and the kids were back here in Jersey because it was um, it was doing a pilot. I didn't know to bring them out, right, you know. Right. And um, I called her, and I would make um, we would make plans to have dinner or, or or whatever. And she'd always say yes. And at the last minute, she would break the date. And I remember calling Robin. I says, I don't think Gilda wants to be my platonic friend anymore. And I told her what I just told you. Robin called me back 10 minutes later. She says, call Gilda. I said, no, I hate her. That's how mature I am. She <laughs> said, um, he says, I just got off the phone with her, call her. And I did. And I said, what's going on? She says, well, I haven't been feeling well. And I said, what's wrong? And she said, I have Epstein-Barr virus. And she says, you know what that is? I said, yeah, it's like mono, right? She says, I'm telling his wife, my head wants to do everything we always did, but my body just won't let me. And I said, well, what did the doctors say? And she said, well, the doctors say it's definitely uh, Epstein-Barr and it's got to run its course. And when are you going to come back out here? I said, well, if the pilot gets sold into series, um, I'll be out in six weeks to start writing scripts and hiring a staff, blah, blah, blah. And she says, I should be better by then. Call me when you come back out. And I did. And she came over with the day that I was moving in to this rented house. Mm -hmm. And I looked at her, I said, oh, you look beautiful, honey. How are you? How are you feeling? And she said, why, Belle, I just found out I don't have Epstein-Barr virus. So I'm going, oh, well, you can go to dinner. We can go to Laker games. And she says, I have cancer. I said, what? She says, I have ovarian cancers, why, Belle, and I need you to help me get through this part of my life. And I said, what do I do? She said, make me laugh. And that became my role in her life. I'd call her and tell her jokes. Gary and I would do a show every week and we'd send her a cassette like it was a Hallmark card. And um, that was all she wanted. And when she, you mentioned her being on It's Gary Shandling's show, she wanted to come on and she became a model of how you can live a, a fruitful Absolutely. life. No matter, she was on the cover of, of, of Life magazine and, and, and uh, she came, she said, I want to do the show. And she says, but I'm afraid that the audience isn't gonna recognize me. It's been six years since I've been on TV. Mm. And then just, I was about to say to her, don't be silly. She says, but you know something? I have to do your show. My comedy is the only weapon I have against this fucker. That's what she mm. called the cancer. She mm. personalized it like that. And she says, why Belle, can you help me make cancer funny? And we did, she wrote most of these jokes. And I remember the night we shot the show. And there's 300 people in the audience, 250, 300, whatever it was. And they didn't know she was coming on. And it was a surprise. Gary is doing a monologue. There's a knock at the door. He opens the door. She steps in. 
hey, everybody, it's Gilda. And the place erupts, okay? It just, I know to this day, I've not heard a response like mm -hmm. this. And then, uh, and it got very emotional to the point where when I was editing, the shot of her coming through the door, you know, the that angle, I uh -huh. wanted, and I noticed that the, um, the frame was jumping just a little bit and I couldn't figure out what it was. And that's the shot I wanted. And then I remember the night we, we actually taped the show. Mm -hmm. That cameraman was crying and he was, his hands oh, were shaking. Yeah. So if you should see that show, look, it's very subtle, but I left it in as a tribute. And we thought she was better. She thought it was a, a remission. As a matter of fact, me and Gary worked with her because Michael Fuchs, who was the head of HBO at the time, wanted Gilda to have her own show where she would be uh, the star of a variety show and you saw it at home and at the office. And I have it here somewhere, those old notes. Wow. And she eventually got sick again, but I had to make my platonic friend laugh to the point where when uh, I went to Cedar sinai to give blood and I'm on the gurney and a nurse comes over with a pad and a pen and I go, what's this? She says, well, Gilda likes to know whose blood she's getting, write something nice. She's having a tough time. So I wrote, dear Gilda, I knew I'd get some fluid of mine into you one way or another. <laughs> so I think that said it pretty nicely, you know? <laughs> oh my God. Um, she, you know, Gilda, I used a quote of Gilda's to start my book. I, I adored Gilda and I'm so grateful for what you two created oh, wow. together. Um, very important part of my life. And I know of, of my whole generation, our, our whole, generation. Our whole so, generation. Okay. So how did you meet Gary? A, a mentor of mine who helped me when I started writing for the Huffington Post, he wrote my first three endings. How did you and Gary meet? Uh, we had the same manager, Bernie Brillstein, mm -hmm. uh, who is now a partner with Brad Gray. Mm -hmm. Okay. Bernie called me. Uh, I was in New York and he said, do you know who Shandling is? And I said, yeah, I had seen him on Letterman. I thought he was funny. And he says, Bernie, you know, this is if, if Santa Claus and um, oh God, uh, I forgot his name already. Um, he lives like Santa Claus, okay? Big and burly and white hair, you know? And um, he'd he said, well, He's doing a pie, he's doing a special for Showtime that's going right into the shit house unless you come in. You need help. It needs help. Okay. <laughs> Kenny Rogers. If Kenny Rogers and Santa yeah. had a kid, okay. it was uh -huh. burning. So they sent me the script. I said, I think I could help. Mm -hmm. And uh, they flew me out. And I met Gary at a um, restaurant. And he was wearing uh, sunglasses. This was at night, indoors in a restaurant. <laughs> And so I'm talking to him. I have no idea where, where he's looking. I couldn't read whether or not he liked me, hated me, hated my, I, I, I you know what I mean? So at the end of dinner, we said, okay, we'll keep in touch. I'm going, oh, I had no clue. I go check into whatever hotel. Yeah. Now I'm still on New York time. Okay. Uh -huh. And so it's one o'clock in the morning, the phone rings and it's four o'clock in the morning for me. And I pick up the phone, I go, hello, Alan, it's Gary. And I go, yeah, what's, what's doing, man? 
Alan, my dog's penis tastes bitter. You think it's his diet or what? <laughs> I called Robin. I said, I think I found the writing partner. <laughs> oh my God, that's his. Nobody thought Gary um, was so <laughs> unique and so smart. And he used to have these basketball games, which have become legendary on Sundays mm -hmm. at his house in Brentwood. And whoever was in town would play. Bob Costas, Ben Stiller, Apatow, you know, everybody, if you were around, you played. And, but I would, let's, let's say the game would start at one. I'd get there at 1230. And it, a lot of young writers were there already. And Gary was mentoring them. They were like devotees of Gary Shandling. And after the game was over, I would leave and they'd still be there. And you talk to Judd Apatow and you talk to Ed Solomon, who wrote the Men in Black movies and Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Uh, we hired him for its Gary Shandling show, but that was all Gary's doing. Mm -hmm. Gary had a, there are a lot of writers out there, very successful ones who will say that they learned about writing from Gary and even at his memorial, mm -hmm. we all spoke, you know, Robin and I flew out for it and we told Gary Shandling uh, stories and jokes. It was really funny because we all had the same jokes when you wanted to get up early. <laughs> so like Sarah Silverman got up there first and told a couple of dirty Gary Shandling jokes. And you see all the people who are gonna, uh, or, you know, eulogize and we're going, oh fuck, you throw away that card, okay? Because you can't say that, which you just did it. But the, at his memorial, um, there were, uh, I wanna say a Buddhist priests. You saw a footage of him wearing robes and, and and chanting he was very 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 spiritual oh yes and he was. even when it came to his writing mm -hmm. he would talk about writing from the core and getting your character down and your stories the jokes can always come later and all of that and um and, and you know i'm sure you know i mean even when gary took up boxing that became a religion i mean i would have dinner with him and I'd be in a Japanese restaurant across the table, and he'd be like this. <laughs> I go, Gary, 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 are you davening? What, what, what is this? Okay. And um, it, it, it became a mindset, it became a philosophy of his. Okay. He was, when I first met him, I want to say it was 86. Uh, he was into crystals that nobody was into at the time. Mm -hmm. He had a cabin up in Big Bear where he used to go and meditate. And um, that's uh, that's where he lived internally. Okay. Hawaii so, was also huge for him. Hawaii, yes, oh my absolutely. God. Yeah. But, you know, Alan, I'm one of the, the unsuccessful writer, but he spent hours and hours on the phone with me. He was so generous with his yeah. time. and. Just so, and having Gary say something with laugh, when Gary would laugh at something, I would, there was no compliment greater than that, none. You know what he would do with me? He, just to annoy me. <laughs> <laughs> I remember we were in a room and he was hosting the Emmys this particular year, okay? He was so great too when he did okay. it. And I was the head writer or something, and he wanted to do a joke. Oh, I remember what it was. Uh, there was a commercial on 
it was either for uh, Viagra or Cialis, okay? And it said, if you have an erection that lasts four hours, call your doctor. And I looked at Gary and said, listen, if I have an erection for four hours, I'm calling everybody. Okay? <laughs> and what he would do is he wouldn't laugh. He would go, oh, that's funny. And he'd write it down. He just, just to piss me off and not give me the satisfaction. And of course he used it and it got a big laugh. And, 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 but he, that's, that was our relationship. Mm -hmm. But I learned so much from him to this day. You know, he's gone a number of years now. Mm -hmm. When I write, the Gary's on my shoulder to a degree because I'm, what would Gary say about this? How would Gary do this? Is there a better way? How do I dig deeper over here? There was something about his approach that mm -hmm. was, once again, it was, um, to a certain degree, it was uh, philosophical, but it was very spiritual, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, absolutely. Are there some people that you've written for, or I assume there are people that are easier than others, like getting inside someone's head and speaking through their voice. Like you got so close with Gary that it became, I'm sure. Yeah. Has anybody been difficult for you to? Oh God, yeah. I did a whole series <laughs> with Farrah Fawcett and Ryan O'Neill. I got talked into doing it after the success of the Shandling show. I got a bunch of offers and Bernie once again said, Hey, <laughs> CBS is in the shit house. You know, they're going out and I'm going, I don't want to do Farrah Fawcett and Ryan O'Neill. They're hooligans. They're the kind of people I make fun of. I, <laughs> and I would bolt up right in the, in the middle of the night. Robin would go, you don't want to do that show. Do you? And no, but they, I, I talked myself into it and I figured, okay, maybe, there's something here that I'm not seeing or whatever. And because um, Bernie would go say like, uh, you know, think Tracy and Hepburn. I go, well, yeah, but I'm sure that Catherine Hepburn didn't fire a loaded gun in Tracy's car when they had fights. I said, these are hooligans. And for the life of me, I couldn't capture them. I don't know if there's a human being with the correct number of chromosomes who could actually... <laughs> <laughs> capture those two and um the, oh the show was a, a disaster uh, it got canceled after 13 shows and um i felt so badly uh, because in the aftermath of it uh that was the one show that when i would see somebody who had been on the show if i'd see their resume they would leave that credit off and i, I felt wow. badly that they had a bad time you know, it's all about the process. You know, I've done things that were very successful and it was like pulling teeth, the process and some things that weren't successful, but the process was fun. Oh, that's when we went to Hawaii. That's when we became friends with so-and-so. You remember, then you put the product out there and people either embrace it. It's a matter of timing or maybe it was a foul tip or, or, or whatever. But with this particular show, the product wasn't good. And the process was horrible. <laughs> oh, was... All right, so one that I'm really curious about because you won an Emmy working with Paul Simon. How do you write? Paul Simon's actually very funny. I mean, he's he's been hysterical on Saturday Night Live and stuff. What did you do for Paul Simon? Because you earned an Emmy award for that. Yeah, Paul um, he, Paul Simon is funnier than anyone knows. He's very very funny, <laughs> 
And um, he and Lorne were doing a, a special for NBC and they needed help. Uh, and so they called in, uh, they called me and uh, Franken and Davis, Al Franken mm -hmm. and his then partner, Tom Davis, to help out because they had sketches. They had, mm -hmm. Chuck Grodin was on the show and there was a sketch with him. Chevy was on the show, there was a sketch with him. So I, I haven't seen the show in many, many years, but there were people on it. So aside from the singing, Artie Garfunkel was on it and there was some stuff with them, with him. So um, there was comedy in it. So we wrote sketches for it. But, I mean, he um, was so wonderful about making fun of himself. I mean, you can call me Al. I mean, that, that video is one of the funniest things ever. Well, Chevy was really funny and Paul is deadpan in it and really <laughs> funny. And um, uh, I, um, I, I, we really like each other, Paul and mm -hmm. I. We don't see each other that much, but every time we run into each other, I, uh, for a book I wrote, I recounted um, something that had happened uh, to me in college and uh, where <laughs> I was in a creative writing class in college, and this is during the Vietnam years, and I was failing this creative writing class. And had I failed, I would have failed out of college, and God knows. Did you have a number? Did you have a draft? The number wasn't high enough. It was like on the cusp, it was 130 mm -hmm. something or whatever. Mm -hmm. And uh, in this creative writing class, you had a hand in your journal on Friday. And as a last ditch effort, what I did was I handed in the lyrics to Paul's song, The Boxer. Okay, and made believe it was my poem. I had a 90 year old teacher who I figured wouldn't recognize it. <laughs> so on Monday, the 90 year old teacher says, you know, I got one poem over the weekend. I, Alan, come up and read it to the class. And I'm going, no, 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 that's so, that's so, I'm glad you like my poem, but I, I, I don't like, you know, talking in front of people. And she prevailed on I me. Mean, now you gotta understand the class of people my age, 20 and 21 at the time, and they all had record collections. Oh yeah. And I'm about to go and read <laughs> the liner notes of the biggest selling album. You won like nine Grammys or something. And so I take my paper and uh, my poem, and uh, I look at the time and there's still like 45 minutes left in the period. And I'm going, all right, there's no way I'm running out the clock with this. <laughs> so I get up in front of my friends and I start, you know, I am just a poor boy, though my story is seldom told. I have squandered my resistance for a pocket full of mumbles, such of promises. All lies in chess, still a man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. I take a breath, I look up over the page and all my friends are like, like that. <laughs> and my, the teacher is beaming, okay, like this Jew who somehow captured the grittiness of the New York streets. And she goes, continue. Oh, God. <laughs> when I left my home and my family, I was no more than a boy in the company of strangers in the quiet of the railway station running scared. Laying low, seeking out the cold quarters <laughs> where the ragged people go, looking for the places only they would know. And that's when it happened. That's when everyone in the class started singing, lie, la, lie, lie, la, lie, 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 la, lie, lie, la, lie, lie, la, lie, 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 lie,
I can't even begin to And then the teacher looked at the class and went, it's inspiring, isn't it? I, I, so I read what I just said to you from my book when the book had first come out on the Letterman show. And it was a big hit and the whole audience started singing Lila Lai, it was fun. <laughs> and, and Paul Simon sent me an email saying, sales of the boxer have rocketed up since I said that. <laughs> and so, you know, and, and to this day, when I run into Letterman, he mentions, you know, the Lila Lai. So, um, <laughs> but Paul Simon, funnier than anybody knows. Wow, I love that. Okay, so speaking of somebody else funny that you uh, have collaborated with, and we're going to get into your books now before we go. So uh, when I first met you, you were writing with Dave Barry, and you guys had written Lunatics, and um, one just an absolutely hysterical book. So now that collaboration is crazy because you were in New York, Dave's in Florida. How the right. hell did you guys do this? Well, we we met on book tour, and we liked each other and made each other laugh. And um, he asked me to be in a band of his. It's called the Rock Bottom Remainders. And Stephen King. The, oh, Stephen yeah. Stephen King, Mitch Album, Scott Turow, Dave Barry, Amy Tan. Wait a minute. You turned it down? I'm in it. Oh, you're in it. Oh, I'm okay. in it. Oh, yeah. I didn't turn oh, that I down. Oh, I saw you singing back up on a video on Twitter. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> I said, Dave, I can't sing or play an instrument. He says, well, you already sound overqualified, but okay. <laughs> Right. No, no, no. You kidding? You know, and then they have ringers sometimes like uh, Roger McGuinn from the birds. Will, oh, will wow. Play. Oh, no. I'm, oh, I would. And as a matter of fact, um, in June, I, I want to say June 16th, we're going to be in Nantucket at, at a book <laughs> festival there. The, the remainders will be. No, we haven't seen each other for a few years because of COVID. So we're really looking forward to it. But with Dave, we uh, liked each other a lot. And I said, let's write something together. He said, how are we gonna do that? I said, let's write a novel. And you're right, we were about 12, 1500 miles apart. Came up with an idea because his daughter, Sophie, was playing uh, sort of like AYSO soccer at the time. And my mm -hmm. kids had already done it, my kids are older. So I said, all right, here's the deal. There's a, there's a, um, a championship soccer game of a local kids league. A kid hits what would be the winning goal. The ref says she's off sides. So the father of the girl and the ref have a local feud. And let's just see how it escalates. You know, maybe as a result of it, there'll be a new Pope. Who knows? Okay. <laughs> so he played, he wrote the part of the girl's um, uh, father, and I wrote the part of the ref. And uh, it just escalated and it became a, a, a book called Lunatics. And um, it's fantastic. And people are, there is a producer who is, um, who uh, just got the rights to it after 10 years. This I'm goes, so happy to hear this. Yeah, so it looks like um, this has a really good, good shot of being made. Oh, you know? I'm so happy to hear this. You guys also wrote with Adam. Oh, I'm Man's gonna... back. Matt, okay. Um, for this, we left Egypt. Oh, it, it's my Passover Haggadah now. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I, I had written a couple of uh, middle grade um, books with Adam. I had met him at a book uh, festival and we wrote a couple of, um, we wrote one that was called Benjamin Franklin, the huge pain in my ass. And um, 
<laughs> Benjamin Franklin. Okay. Uh, I introduced the two of them together, or the two of them, and we said, let's write something together. Adam said, why don't we do a parody of the Haggadah? And we did it. And and I think Dave came up. It wasn't me. I think it was Dave. who came A non-Jew. A non-Jew, <laughs> but he came up with, but married to one. And his daughter was bat mitzvahed. And uh, so he's like honorary Jew. And he, uh, he, um, he came up with the title for This We Left Egypt. And it did very well to the point where the same publisher gave us another book. And we did a, a field guide to the Jewish people where they are. <laughs> with what to feed them and what it's all about. Yeah. Well, the Haggadah is fantastic. And um, it was right before Passover when I, I guess I interviewed you the first time and you, we talked about the Haggadah, then sure. I got it and I got copies for everybody and we did it at the at the Seder. It was, it was fabulous. We laughed oh, great. like hell. We laughed like hell, it was fabulous. Okay, right. and then, so... Um, how, how did you do a three-way collaboration on a book? How the hell do you do that? Well, Adam would, he was, he's the meticulous one. He's the school mom of the three. Now, Adam Mansback, if your audience isn't familiar with his name, he wrote a children's book a few years back that sold a gazillion copies. The name of the kid's book was Go to Fuck to Sleep, okay? <laughs> and this is a book which is hilarious because parents of very young kids give it to each other because that's how you feel when the kid doesn't go to sleep. And if you want to hear something really funny, just Google, go to fuck to sleep, audio version. It's Samuel L. Jackson reading the book. And it's like threatening the kid with the same words, but he can feel like, you know, he doesn't make up any of his own words, but that the intonation is such where he's going to beat the shit out of this little kid. So um, when we did the Haggadah and then when we again did the field guide to the Jewish people, Adam would give us a list of topics to do. And we would just go, okay, I'll do this, I'll do that. And, um, you know, before you know, we had a hundred pages and we sold it, you know. So, so how does it, your three different uh, um, personalities. Right. Although I can't tell you where one of you ended and one of you started, was there a continuity issue of, of making it one voice or, or did you not need that? Didn't really need it, uh, oddly enough. It just meshed nicely. Look, now, if I read something that Adam wrote and I thought of a better joke, I would tell it to him. It would be up to him if he wanted to do it or not. But we didn't change any of the vernacular, no, none of the syntax, you know, um, even when I was writing Lunatics Alone with, uh, with, with, with Dave, we didn't have an outline. We just, I would send him a, a, a chapter. We alternated chapters. I would, mm -hmm. I would write it in the voice of my guy. Then he would write his in the voice of his guy. And it was like having a deranged pen pal. I wouldn't know <laughs> what he was sending me. Go, oh yeah, all right. Okay. So I'd react and it would go like that. And we decided we weren't going to edit each other because we wanted the two voices. The only time he gave me a note. He called me up after I sent him a chapter. And the chapter is only three, four pages long because he didn't right. want to caught in one guy's head too much. He said, Alan, look, I know we said um, that we're not going to uh, edit each other. He says, but the chapter you sent me, you just killed all of our characters. <laughs> he said, so I don't know how. <laughs> 
I, I had them on a on an ocean liner and they all jumped off in this <laughs> like 500 feet into they all, Alan, they're all dead. So I don't know what to do. I said, yeah, maybe they shouldn't jump. So that's the only time <laughs> that I said, let me revisit this. <laughs> Hysterical. Do you do you guys have plans for anything moving forward? Yeah, we do. As a matter of fact, um, the three of us are talking about uh, Haggadah, the musical. And um, <laughs> so God knows. <laughs> I, I'm, well, there's plenty of songs to, to pull from right there. There you go. There you go. Okay, so tell us about Laugh Lines, your latest, your your well, so, your latest solo effort. Well, Laugh Lines, you know, I had been asked for a long time to write a memoir, and I didn't want to have one of those books. Oh, then I wrote this, and then I wrote that, and but I understood the instinct because when that book starts, I'm 22, mm -hmm. and last week I turned 72. So there's a half a century wow. of American comedy that I've been fortunate enough, you know, to be, live through the transitions and, and, and all of that. Front row seat. But what, yeah, I've been fortunate. So what I did was, and I'd already, when Gilda passed, mm -hmm. I wrote, wrote a book called Bunny Bunny, which was a tribute to her. And so, and that was, that was um, cancer. And I knew uh, and it was instigated by my wife, Robin said, you should write something about the two of you. It was cathartic because she says, your best friend died. You haven't cried yet. So I wrote Bunny Bunny. And and which turned into a play, an off-Broadway play. Turned into a play. And now there's talk of a movie, hopefully that Woo! will. Be. Um, but when Gary passed, mm -hmm. at the end of our show, we weren't talking. It, there was... Um, uh, I was married with three kids. I wanted to write about that. Gary was still single trying to get laid and he wanted to write about that. And mm -hmm. he resented the fact that I was looking elsewhere. I resented the fact that he was, you know, tying my hands and we weren't talking. And uh, we always had a home on the East Coast and Robin, uh, th that particular summer after the show ended, mm -hmm. he saw in the paper that he was going to be in Atlantic City at some hotel and um, she, she called him and she said, I'm bringing Alan down, I'm putting you in a room and you two aren't coming out until you're friends again. Aww. And that's what we did. And we weren't friends, but we at least broke the ice. And it, and it took a long, long time, Vicky, because um, we weren't working on the same show anymore. So we didn't have to be together. Right. So uh, he was doing Larry Sanders. I was doing that, the, the Ryan O'Neill thing. And uh, <laughs> oh, my God, help me. Uh, and uh, so I got to accept the fact that he returned one out of every three phone calls. And then when email came about, you know, one out of every three. And we were starting to get closer and closer. And we were just about there where we were like brothers again, you know, and I was out in California working on here today with Billy. We we're working on the script. It was over a weekend. I called Gary. I said, I'm in town. You want to have dinner? Because I felt that we just need a little bit more. We would be back. We couldn't get it together for dinner. So we made up that and I had to go, go back to East Coast that we would speak Thursday night. He died Thursday morning. And that one was whiplash, okay? And I still had more to say. 
and there was still an emotional tug and, and the memorial was helpful and Variety asked me to write a tribute to him, but I still had more, I had to do some digging the way I had done with Gilda. Mm -hmm. So that gave me an emotional sort of thrust. I still did Gilda in there and I got Gary in there. I went, okay, I got emotional tug that people that, that I need to do and I know that it will be effective. So it, it covers everything from the Catskills through here today, but when you get to it's Gary Shanling show and Gary, I, I take extra time over there to talk about him. Alan, anything you write, any movie, we didn't even talk about your, your films. We didn't talk about North. We didn't talk about the story of us. There's, there's, there's an endless, countless things to discuss because you've been so prolific. What's your, what's before we go, what's your, daily discipline. I mean, I can't even imagine you've been so prolific. I, I wake up at 530 every morning, okay. literally. And I come into my office here to coffee and whatever. And I start writing and I usually work on two or three projects at the same time, but no two in the same form. So like one screenplay. Okay, not, not two screenplays, one screenplay, right? Uh, one, um, a pilot, or, uh, or maybe just a three-page article for the New Yorker. So the discipline is down. But you know something? 5.30 in the morning, sometimes by 7, I go, oh, God, I'm dry as a bone. <laughs> I'm done with my work for the day. Or I keep going until, you know, the well is dry in, in, in the afternoon. But I, I started doing that when the kids were living at home and they were younger. I got up before they did. And I would take my first break to take them to school mm. and come back. And that just somehow has become the routine. So how, I've, I talked to a friend of mine, Chris Brancato uh, created Narcos. And he said that what he does is he sets a timer literally for 10 minutes. He, if he has five projects, he'll work 10 minutes. When the timer sounds, he moves to the next. And then after that, he goes back to the one that's most important. And that's the one he focuses on. So if you're working on three different things, how much time are you giving each one before you'll allow yourself to move to the next one? See, I never heard anybody literally timing themselves. And, and I think that that's terrific. And I think it's, it's wow, really laudable that it's, um, that it's got that formula down in terms of the allotted time. If, if I'm, if, if I start working, like I have a new book mm -hmm. and um, it's not there yet. It's not right yet. So I'll start with that. Maybe there's an inspiration there. Oh yeah. Wow. What if I try this? I'll follow it. I usually tap out based on not the clock, mm. but, but the words I'm going, all right. Okay. Now what I'm writing with this particular thing, these are just lateral moves. It's not moving anything along. It's still 11 o'clock in the morning. Um, uh, let's look at the uh, the New Yorker piece, you know, or something like that. Um, I, I Look, do you remember the, um, the movie, uh, the Dalton Trumbo movie? Uh, Dalton Trumbo was the uh, blacklisted yeah. writer. Yeah. He, well, Johnny got his gun and everything. And it showed him writing and he was in a bathtub, naked. He was like in a bathtub and he had a piece of plywood that went from this- That, that was in a movie just a few years ago. Yes, I do remember that's, that. That's the movie Trumbo. And he had a uh, typewriter on the plank and that's the way he wrote. 
I mean, I know of writers, uh, very, very successful ones who write standing up. I know of, of a couple who lay flat <laughs> on their stomach with their hands out <laughs> like this. You know, and I go, wow, how do you figure out that that's the way, <laughs> you know, what would, what would the, nah, you know, the, the guy in the bathtub, okay, did you try it in a shower first? And he went, no, it gets the paper wet. I got to want the water. You know, I'm, I'm fascinated about how people get their habits, you know? How do you, what do you, what's your, uh, what's your, what's your situation when you're writing? I, I, I sit, I sit in a chair. I put my legs up on, uh, on a coffee table. I got a TV over there. Yeah, you said you have your TV on. It doesn't distract you? No, you the no, the white noise is comforting. And I usually watch like Law and Order SVU because I've seen <laughs> them all. So it's not like it's going to suck me in, okay? Oh, yeah, this is the one where she's <laughs> the thing with the... All right, so, but just so, that, so it just keeps me company. Wow, I'm loving this. And, and do you ever take a day off? Well... No, I don't plan any, but at the end of a day, oh, a month or so ago, I'll look at Rob and go, you know, I didn't write anything today, but I, I never planned it. I would say by and large, it's every single day. I love that, Alan. And, and during COVID, did it affect your productivity at all? No, it actually, you listen, you know, and, and I've spoken to a lot of writers about this who, who have home offices. Home anyway, this is what we do. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Wake up, brush your teeth, go down the hall, make a right turn, you're in your office <laughs> and start writing. I do that whether it's COVID <laughs> or not, you know. Um, but it was, a, and I know a lot of writers who um, were very productive during that time. Listen, we're inside. I want to have something to show for it when we come out. Yeah. Well, I went live every day, so there's that. But I didn't do a lot of writing. I I I I got kind of yeah, I didn't do a lot of writing. But I'm I'm excited to hear about yours and it's and it's motivating me to uh but I write every day for five minutes and I've been doing that for, for like 21 years. Oh, that's great. with somebody. So I, I got a book out of it, but it took me 13 years while you were writing eight books. Yeah, but it doesn't matter. It's, it's a matter of the productivity, whether it's this much or that much. It's, um, you know, there's something in your brain or in your constitution that goes, okay, I got a, this now, okay? It's ready to be seen whether it takes 13 years or it takes a year or, or six months, doesn't matter that you have something to show for it. Well, as Gary Marshall said, just finish. He was yeah. all about that. You got to finish. Um, I love you, Alan. Thank you so much. Thanks for, for having this. me, Vicki. I really appreciate it. And you know something, I think we, um, uh, despite what Julie said about it, her wanting to kill herself, <laughs> uh, I, I think that, um, I, I think we came up with a very um, interesting start. It was necessary. And I, I, I loved talking to you. And anytime you want me, I'm, I'm here for you. Well, I will be calling you and bringing you back. Thank you so much. And I hope you feel better and get over the Thanks COVID. a lot. I appreciate it a lot, Vicki. Take, Take care, care. Alan.